Well, I was thinking of um, saying that we've got a very full section to look at, and I was thinking, well, when do I not say that? You must be waiting for the day when I get up and say, you know, there's not much in this scripture today. Uh, Frankly, I don't know what I'm going to say, so let's try to fill the time the best we can. But uh, that is not this day. Looking at Matthew fifteen thirty nine through sixteen twelve, I wonder do we ever romanticize the apostles? I think some people must. After all, they were handpicked by Christ, right? They got to walk with him and live with him, eat with him, listen to him day and night. They literally lived in the presence of the greatest teacher who ever lived. I mean, that it cheapens him even to say that he was the Word of God incarnate. He was the wisdom of God incarnate. Everything they heard him teach was a word straight from God's heart. So does that mean that they, these hand-picked men, were always sharp and always on point, always quick studies, always at the top of the class, first to shoot up their hands with the right answer? Is that the sorts of guys that they were? Well, we're going to find out today if we haven't already. And we will see that their course of instruction and their experience as students of Christ has a lot to teach us about being students of Christ. So let's dig in together, beginning by looking at the field trip, Roman numeral one. And what class would be a class without the occasional field trip? And they've got one right here. A field trip in chapter 15, verses uh, 39 through 16, verse 4. And after releasing the crowds, he got into the boat and came into the regions of Magadan. And when the Pharisees and Sadducees came up testing, they demanded him to display for them a sign from the sky. So remember the course of his his travels here. In chapter 15, verse 1, he's uh, in the area of Galilee. He has a clash with these men from Jerusalem, and he stages a strategic departure from them, crosses the sea, goes up to Tyre to the north, and then north to Sidon and then ministers to that Canaanite woman with a demon-possessed daughter. He heals many people, comes back down through um, Decapolis to the east and to the south, ends up on the southeast side of the Sea of Galilee, and there he continues to have a ministry to these Gentiles, and he feeds 4,000 men, plus their wives and their children. And so, We start off with him on that side, but uh, 1539 tells us that he gets into the boat and crosses back to the west side. So now he's back in the area he was before. He's in Jewish territory now next to the Sea of Galilee. He's back with what should be his people. So think of what happens here. He's, He's off in Gentile territories ministering to the little dogs, to the Gentiles. And what's their response? Well, we just read last week, they glorified the God of Israel. A wonderful response. And then he comes back to his people, to the children. He brings the bread back to the children. And what happens? An immediate resumption of hostilities. They're waiting for him, and they think they've got a test that is just going to humiliate him. Uh, verse, one says, verse 1 of chapter 16 says, they're demanding a sign from the sky. So it's like a, a guy whose wife is furiously listing off all of his failures as a man and a husband, and he just steps outside for a minute to catch his breath, and then he walks back in, and she's ready with number 17 on the list, you know, to start right back up again. He comes back, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees are ready. But what's interesting, Matthew says... Uh, 
the Pharisees and Sadducees came up testing. It's hard to tell whether they came up to test or they demanded to test. Grammatically, the word could go either way, but it amounts to the same thing. They had one thing in their mind. Oh, formally, they're asking for a sign. You might say, well, at least they're doing what the bumper sticker says, right? They're going to give Christ a chance. Uh, that's not what they're there for. They want Christ to fail. They're, they're, we're going to talk about this later, but they think that they can move the goalpost in a way that he will finally fail, and they can show what a fraud he is. But here's an interesting thing. Who is this who's doing this? The Pharisees and Sadducees. Did you know they don't get along together? We say those words like, they, like they're paired, but they're not paired. They were very different groups. The Pharisees were popular with the people, and they, remember, were the ones who piled tradition on top of the law, believed in a tradition given at Mount Sinai, passed on orally through the ages, that is really, in, in, in practice, more important than the actual Word of God. That's the Pharisees. But the Sadducees did not believe in tradition. They had a different approach to Scripture. The Pharisees were, were the people's false teachers, the Sadducees tend to be more the priestly class and the aristocratic class. They're the ones who like to have political power. They like to be in with the elite, uh, like a great many of our evangelical celebrities today. They like to be well thought of by the elite. We'll talk more about how they're different, but the fact is you don't see them working together, but it's interesting. Isn't it sweet? Jesus brings them together here, but they're together because they hate him. That's what binds these otherwise disparate groups together, their hatred of Jesus. And they disagree about a whole lot of things, but they agree about one thing. We've got to shut this guy up. He's making both of us look bad. He's making you look bad. He's making us look bad. So let's pool our resources and let's shut him up. I think we've got something that's going to do the trick. And that's always funny to read. You know, it's always, you think, well, good luck with that, except we don't believe in luck. And we know it's not going to go well for them. But they come asking for a sign. Now, let me just ask you this question. What has he been doing? <laughs> Every day of his ministry, what's he been doing? Oh, raising the dead, healing lepers, giving sight to the blind, giving hearing to deaf people making paralyzed people able to, to, to move, making lame people able to walk, and on and on. In fact, on the lake, he stopped a storm. He walked on the surface of the water. He fed hungry thousands and thousands with just a few loaves and just a few fishes. They're, he's doing this all the time. He's not doing it in, in set-off rooms. He's not doing it with strange lighting. Uh, he's doing it in broad daylight. You know, it's, it, it's such a contrast uh, if you listen to any charismatics talking about their great signs and wonders. They always happen someplace else. And nobody had a camera phone. Isn't that just the weirdest thing? I remember hearing Benny Hinn once talking about how wonderful his crusade in an area was. People were flying through the air, he said. Flying through the air. I'd like to have seen that. Pity nobody did. But this is what they live on. On the other hand, what Jesus did, everybody saw. They couldn't deny it. So what do they do? Well, they want to move the goalposts. Moses did signs in the sky, didn't he? Right? There was hail. There was darkness. Uh, Elijah did. Uh, Joshua stopped the sun for a battle. So maybe they can just have Jesus do that same thing. And what would that accomplish? What would that accomplish? But even more, think about it this way. The miracles that Jesus did, what did they all have in common? He healed the sick. He raised the dead. 
He, he fed the hungry. He stopped a storm that was threatening the life of these terrified fishermen. What do all these things have in common? What, what to, you say, well, they have in common that I couldn't do any of those things. Well, okay, that's true. What else do they have in common? They're all help for miserable people. And, and what do we call that quality, that virtue, that moves someone in compassion to want to help a miserable person? What is that virtue? Why, that's mercy. Say, now that's interesting, isn't it? What one quality did he tell the Pharisees that they had none of? What one assignment did he give them? He said, go look up Hosea 6.6 and study that one. And what does Hosea 6.6 say? I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And what homework assignment did they not complete? Jesus brings this up twice. Do you remember? He tells them to look that up. And then later, when they're persecuting the apostles for not doing their Sabbath rules, he says, if you'd studied that, you wouldn't be persecuting the innocent. So what do we have here? We have a man whose entire public ministry has been a mercy ministry. It's been healing and helping and feeding miserable people in a miraculous, powerful way. But that doesn't interest them. They don't care about that. That's not anything to them because they're not about mercy. They want something that will serve no purpose except to entertain them. If Jesus did make lightning flash or hail come from the sky, who would that have benefited? Well, nobody. But they didn't care about that, you see. And that's why they, one of the reasons why they fundamentally had no no use for Jesus. He wasn't animated by what animated them. They were animated by what, how people saw them. And that did not animate Jesus. <laughs> and he didn't teach his apostles to be animated by that either. So this is how their unbelief operates. The fact is they don't want to believe. And you just cannot ever make a case good enough to convince someone who doesn't want to believe. And in that case, it's not the evidence. It's the person. The person will always just move the goalpost. I'll remind you of the joke, uh, if you're new enough, you haven't heard this, but the rest of you have. The joke about the guy who had the friend who just could never be impressed by anything. If he, if he got a new car, this guy had a bigger car. If he got a new house, this guy had a bigger house. If his wife won some award, his wife won a bigger award. So one day he thought he had something that the guy could not failed to be impressed by. They went hunting together, and his friend shoots a duck. Splash! The duck lands, and he sends his dog out swimming to get the duck, and brings the duck back. So then this guy, he shoots a duck. Quack, quack, quack. Bang. Splash. He sends his dog out. His dog dances on the surface of the water. Picks up the duck and dances back on the surface of the water, and so he looks at his friend and waits for him to be impressed, and his friend just looks and says, dog can't swim, huh? Well, this is that kind of spirit. They're just not going to be impressed. So they think they only name that sign because they're sure Jesus can't do it. And Jesus just doesn't play the game. Now, notice this, by the way. Isn't this worth noticing? He just had thousands of needy Gentiles, and he healed masses of them and fed thousands of them. They're in need. He miraculously helps them. These arrogant, proud, hard-hearted unbelievers... They want him to amuse them. He's got no time for it. Could he have? Sure, he had the power. No dice. 
He's not here to entertain people. Still isn't. So this is how uh, unbelief operates. Uh, A man convinced against his will, how does the rest of that go? Is of the same opinion still. A man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. And they don't want to believe, they're not going to believe. Letter B then, we see the challenge, so how does Jesus respond? Well, I'm going to say a brief thing about this. You notice those verses are in uh, brackets in my translation, verses 2 and 3. And that's because they're missing from some significant early Greek manuscripts. You know, we've got thousands of copies of uh, parts of the Greek New Testament, thousands of early copies, but no two of them agree in every last particular. Usually it's the difference of a letter, Uh, or a a word. None of them makes any material difference. This is the most significant one in the book of Matthew, which is why I'm saying anything about it. This is the the longest one in the book of Matthew. They're just missing from some early manuscripts and not quoted by some early scholars as if they were missing. And then they are in a bunch of other manuscripts. So do we think that Matthew wrote them or do we think that they were added later uh, by a scribe? Well, first of all, I would just have you notice, I mean, on your own time, Read it and skip the bracketed section. Skip from, but he in answer said to them, to verse 4, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and so forth. And you'll see that that, that the point is the same. The point is not lost by taking these verses out. And these verses don't contain the whole doctrine of the Trinity or justification or the gospel. And if we lose those verses, ah, we don't know what to believe anymore. They're not of that kind of consequence. And I would just tell you, this is the case of all textual differences. I I, I take the time to do this because you'll hear some unbelievers say, oh, there's all these textual uncertainties in the New Testament. Not that many. And they aren't consequential to any major doctrine. And this is a good example of one. Uh, But you look and you see this actually does fit very well. It's very Matthean in style. And and although you could do without it, it fits into the section very well. Uh, Let me show you how that is. Notice in verse 1, what do they ask for? They ask for a sign from the sky. And then notice in verses 2 and 3, he mentions the sky how many times? One, two, three. Huh. And then you notice that uh, they mentioned a sign. He mentions signs once in verse 3. But then he says the singular sign like they had. How many times in verse 4? One, two, three. So they want a sign from the sky. And he mentions a sign three times in verse 4, and the sky three times in verses 2 and 3 that are textually uncertain. Isn't that just like Matthew's style of hearing Jesus to hear the threes? And so it fits in well, in my own opinion, as it probably is original. And the reason why some scribes left it out is possibly because in Mark's version, he doesn't have those words. Maybe they were harmonizing it. Or maybe they lived in Egypt where they didn't know what they were talking about, red sky and (laughs) this weather thing, and they thought they might as well just drop it. it. You can explain why somebody would drop it out, a copier, but not why somebody would stick it in. And it it fits into the section very well. So I'll teach it as if it were the words of Jesus because I I believe that it most likely was. So let's talk about it, having said that. He, he, uh, in verses 2 and 3, he responds and points out their folly. They want a a sign from the sky. 
He says, well, you say, when evening comes, you say, fair weather for the sky is fiery red. And in the early morning, today will be stormy for the sky is fiery red, gloomy. On the one hand, the face of the sky, you know how to discern. But on the other, the signs of the set times, you are not able to discern. Well, he starts off with some folk wisdom they would have all agreed with about, about reading the weather. Uh, it makes sense about the clouds over the Mediterranean and the rising and setting of the sun. But then he uses that in verse 3b to slam, to body slam, their utter blindness to God's purpose. The signs of the times, meaning God's times, God's set, decreed, prophetically announced times. And we've seen how Matthew's shown by Old Testament quotations again and again that what Jesus was doing in his ministry was just what the Old Testament said Messiah would do. And he was giving signs that indicated just what the Old Testament said the kingdom of the Messiah would be like. And anyone reading and believing those prophecies and looking at the ministry and teaching of Jesus would say, oh, well, this is that. I can see how this is the fulfillment of that. But they looked at the same thing that the believers looked at, and they didn't see it. They know all about the sky when it comes to weather, but they can't do anything. And they're experts, supposedly, about God's Word, but they can't tell when God's Word is being fulfilled right before their eyes. So he's showing what fools they are. But they aren't just fools. It would be enough if they weren't very bright. That would be pretty sad. But they're not just fools. They're wicked and they're faithless. Verse 4, he says, A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Well, now, here's their real problem. Their problem is not a logical problem. It's not a rational problem. It's not an intellectual problem. What is it? It's a moral and spiritual problem. The problem is not in the evidence. The problem is in their hearts. It's not in what they see or don't see. It's in how they look at it. And that's a measure of who they are. And who are they? Well, they're wicked, which is to say they are unsubmissive to the word and the righteousness of God. They don't submit to the Word of God. He'd shown them that in, ch in chapter 15. Your, your traditions have contradicted the Word of God and you cling to your traditions. You don't repent and cling to the Word. They're wicked and they're adulterous. They're being uh, unfaithful to God. Now, obviously, adultery is not just a sexual, physical thing because this here is about their walk with God. It's a spiritual thing. And if you've read the Old Testament much, you've seen many times that God charges Israel with adultery. With whom did Israel commit adultery? Idols. Idols, idols, idols. Oh, you say, I'm glad I don't have that threat. We don't have idols today. Don't we? <laughs> yes, we do. I just think of the one where James says, uh, in James, I believe it's 4, James chapter 4, where he says, you adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is adultery against God? The world is a mistress Wanting to be liked and approved by those who don't like and don't approve of God is a mistress. To be wed to that and seeking after that, as the Pharisees did, is adultery. To swerve from the word, as the Pharisees did, is wickedness. To be enamored of people's opinion like the Sadducees did, I should say, is, is adultery. They are wicked and they are adulterous. So what they need is not more... Would, would more evidence make them not wicked and not adulterous? No, that's taking a medicine for the wrong disease, isn't it? If their problem is wickedness and adultery, what's the medicine? Repentance. 
Perhaps he'd mentioned repentance before. Perhaps he mentioned it all the time. That's what they needed, repentance and humbling before God. We need the same thing today. America needs the same thing today. The world needs the same thing today. So, uh, and notice too, though he says a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. So he's not just putting them, uh, this on them. He's putting this on the generation. We just looked at that recently, didn't we? In all the places where Jesus spoke to that generation, that this characterized that generation of Jews, that they, that they as a generation, were not repenting and not res- re- responding to the Word of God. And, and this is a, a broken record song of mine. Everyone, every time somebody talks about all the terrible teachers and pastors and leaders there are and how we need better pastors and preachers and teachers, I say, well, amen, 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 but that's not the problem. Because where would these people be without all their thousands and thousands of followers? I saw a cartoon that puts it very vividly. I I hope I can describe it well enough for you. It shows a false teacher out uh, on his pulpit spouting out his false doctrine. And he's on this board, this plank that is extended over a bottomless pit. And he's suspended on this plank. His pulpit rests on this plank. And on the other end of the plank, on the cliff, is a bunch of people standing on the plank. And the caption is, false teachers would be nowhere without their followers. And that's true. If they would repent and step off the plank, he would fall to his well-deserved anonymity. But they don't. Their churches are filled by the thousands, the tens of thousands, their conferences, their book signings, and faithful preachers of the Word of God across the country are preaching to congregations of 10, 40, 70, 90 Uh, It's not just the leaders, it's the followers. It's that generation in Jesus' case. And then he talks about the sign. He says the sign's not going to be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Now that's interesting. Uh, Turn back to Matthew 12 with me just quickly. Matthew 12, 38 and following. Got a couple of interesting things to note there. So Matthew 12, 38 then some of the scribes and Pharisees this time answered and said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation eagerly seeks, after, seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth." So one interesting thing is this isn't the first request for a sign. Another interesting thing is, do you notice that, that, well, the fact is, Jesus answers them in exactly the same words. He's repeating himself. Only here he just briefly says the sign of Jonah and doesn't express the rest. He wants them to remember what he said earlier. So I have a couple of things uh, to draw from that that I think are helpful in understanding Jesus. One is that he wasn't afraid of repeating himself. He often repeated himself. In this case, it's a verbatim repetition of what he'd said earlier. And that really is the key of good teaching. And it's the thing I constantly need to remind myself. I, I have a dreadful fear of, of ever making people think that the teaching of the Word of God is boring. And one way to do that is just to say the same thing over and over again. But being a good teacher means saying the same thing over and over again until people learn it. And Jesus did do that. He did repeat it. And his apostles did the same. When Peter wrote his second letter, he said, this is the second time I'm writing you about these things, stirring up your mind.
mind by way of reminder. It's a very important thing. But another thing that it teaches us, just as we study the Gospels, I don't know if you've studied them close enough to notice, but you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you see the same thing Jesus said, but in different settings. You know, maybe here it's on a mountain, but here it's in a, in a valley, and here it's to the priest, but it's here it's to this guy, and, and you think, oh, is that a contradiction? That's kind of weird how those don't go together. Well, the simple answer probably is just that he said the same things again and again. He said it on a mountain. He said it in a valley. He said it to the priests. He said it to a guy, you know. He said the same things over and over again. You see right here he did exactly that. This is the mark of Jesus as a good and patient and insistent teacher because he did want them to get this point. So the sign was going to be the sign of Jonah. And what was Jonah? Well, Jonah was swallowed up in the belly of the great creature And it was like being dead. He was gone from the scene of the earth for three days. And then he's vomited back and he comes back. And Jesus says like that, I'll be three days in the heart of the earth. And then what? He rises from the dead. That would be the sign for that generation. And that stands as the sign to that generation and to our generation as well. So then letter C, we have his exit. Very briefly, chapter 16, verse 4b. And leaving them behind, he departed. Well, he's practicing what he preached, isn't he? He'd had a class with him. He comes back, and they're right back where he left him. They haven't learned one thing. And so what did he say in the Sermon on the Mount about holy things and pearls? Don't give what's holy to dogs. Don't cast pearls to swine. What did he say in chapter 10 to the missionaries he sent out uh, that they should do when a city wouldn't listen to their preaching? What did he tell them to do? Dust the dust off your feet as you leave that place. Which, by the way, was a thing done to Gentiles. Yikes. So he does this to them. He leaves them now. And actually, this marks pretty much the end of his Galilean ministry. Now he's going to cross the lake. He's going to go up far north to Caesarea Philippi, as we'll see next week. And then passing back through this area, he's going to head for Jerusalem. But he's pretty much done with this area. And this marks why. They've heard it. And now the time is coming for him to come to the time appointed by God for him. So that's the field trip. Now let's turn to the lesson, Roman numeral 2. They've had their field trip. What does he want to teach them from this field trip? Chapter 16, verses 5 through 12, the lesson. Well, the first thing that we see here is that even hand-picked apostles needed to be taught. The lesson taught in verses 5 through 11. Even these hand-picked apostles needed to be taught. And taught by three activities we see Jesus doing here. The first is warning. They're taught by warning in verses 5 and 6. Now they'd omitted something. They forgot something. Verse 5 tells us, And when the disciples came unto the other side, they forgot to take loaves. Now I think this, actually this story has puzzled me a long time. And I think that I understand it now. Or you would probably have a guest speaker while I kept studying it. But I think I understand it now. Uh, Matthew's telling us this. They had not realized it yet themselves. Matthew's telling us we need to know to understand what happens. We need to know that they had forgotten to take loaves. That's, that's the background or else what follows won't make sense to us. So we have Christ's admonition now, letter B, his admonition, A-D-M-O-N-I-T, admonition. 
He admonishes them. He warns them. And Jesus said to them, Watch out and be wary of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now this is a very emphatic warning. It would have been enough if he told them to watch out. It would have been enough if he told them to be wary. But he tells them to watch out and be wary. This is something they've really got to be on their guard about. Why particularly? Well, we'll see that later, hopefully. Watch out and be wary of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So the thing that is to frighten them is leaven. Now, what, what is leaven? I just remind you, it's proverbial of something small and pervasive. Something small that um, will penetrate a larger mass in time. It's, it's insidious. It will get in there. So it's last week's bread stuck into this week's dough, and it will eventually leaven the whole lump of this week's dough. It'll have a big impact. So he says, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So Jesus sees here a danger in their future. He sees that they're in danger. He sees the, they need to watch out for this. It applies to them. He sees in them a vulnerability. You particularly need to stay on your guard for this, he says. Uh, he's actually using a present tense. So remain perpetually, continually on guard for this. So the danger's there, but they can avoid it if they take seriously what Jesus says, lay it to heart, and act on it. This is what they need to do. But the implication is also the opposite. If they don't do that, then they will fall to this danger. So we'll talk more about this later, but let me make an application now. Notice that Jesus doesn't just hope for the best. He doesn't just say, well, I've, I've taught them the truth. Everything ought to work out. I hope, I hope, you know, I hope everything works out. These guys, they're sharp. They're good guys. They got this. He's picked them by hand, but still he warns them. Still he sees them as being vulnerable. Well, does he warn us to beware of anything? Does he warn us to test spirits, to uh, test everything, in fact? Shrink from what's evil, hold fast to what's good, test doctrine? Does he tell us to beware about anything? (coughs) Well, yes, he does quite a bit. (coughs) And as with them, he does it because he sees a danger and he sees a weakness. And like them, we need to listen and heed. Do we? Is today's Christian by and large, characterized by great caution and discernment in how they receive teaching and doctrine? Hmm. We'll return to that later. But first, he warns them. He teaches them by warning. Secondly, he teaches them by scolding. Yes, that's the right word. By scolding. S-C-O-L-D. Scolding. And they began discussing among themselves, oh, we didn't take loaves. But Jesus, because he knew, said, Why are you discussing among yourselves, you of little faith, that you do not have loaves? I think that's about the way to read that, (laughs) to read that interchange. So, see, they start out at a loss, and then it gets worse. They misunderstand them, and then they lose ground, (laughs) in fact. So, Matthew's told us what, what they don't know yet, I take it. They didn't bring any bread. And so, Jesus mentions leaven, and what's the first thought in their minds? Food! Oh, we didn't bring any bread. That's why he's talking about leaven. Oh, what are we going to do? There's 13 of us, and we didn't bring any bread. We just had all those loaves, and we didn't bring any loaves. 
What are we going to do now? And, this, and, and they really get into this. This is an imperfect verb, meaning that they began. They kept on. They really started going about this. Jesus says leaven, and they're going, oh, right, no bread. Of course, it's got to be what he's talking about. We don't have bread. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? How are we going to get bread? And notice that Jesus comes down on them pretty sharply. There's no two ways around it. I'm not going to say, well, the Greek really says, come on, you cuddly little guys. That's not what the Greek says. He's, he's, he's rough with them. He, he comes right down to them. He scolds them. He says, why are you discussing among yourselves? You have little faith that you do not have loaves. He uses this word oligopistoi. I told you he made that word up, little faith. That's his own little affectionate nickname for them. He made that word up. We don't have anybody else using it before Jesus. Now, as I read this, what I would really expect him to say is, you have little brain. You know, I mean, (laughs) you have little smarts because it's just, they're being kind of stupid. So why does he single out faith? What does faith have to do with their misunderstanding him? And that got me to thinking and and digging in. And I think we have the answer by by just looking at the other times that he used that word. Write these down, but I'll read to you. The first use was in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 29 and 30, where he says, why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothed the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So there he uses it to speak to people who are anxious about material things and not trusting God to see to their needs. He uses it again in chapter 8, where the boat is in this storm and Jesus is asleep. And they wake him up and they say, save us, Lord, we're perishing. Well, what did he told them to do? Cross the lake. What do they think they're going to do? Go halfway across, sink, drown, and die. And so much for the ministry of Jesus. They think they're going to die. And what does he do? He gets up and he says, Why are you so cowardly, you men of little faith? He believes they should have exercised their faith and not been terrified of circumstances and trusted that God would get them through and fulfill his program, his plan, whatever it took. He used it again, we just saw in chapter 14 of Peter. Peter gets out of the boat. He's walking across the water to Jesus. But then he sees the storm and the waves and he's all afraid and he starts to sink. And he cries out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus catches him, pulls him up and says, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And now here he says, you of little faith there. Why? Because the first place they'd go is to be anxious for food. He mentions leaven and their minds go right to being afraid they're going to starve in the service of God with Jesus there with them. So it's as if, I mean, for you who came to Sunday school, uh, it's as if you were to say to me, ah, yes, Pastor Dan, we must be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And I said, oh yeah, what am I going to wear to the Reformation celebration? You know, and you go, what? what? That's where your mind goes when I talk about this? It goes to clothes? I'm talking about Christ's imputed righteousness? Well, so here he's talking about the leaven of the Pharisees. Is he really talking about where they buy their bread? But that's where their minds go because that's what's most important to them and their faith is not. If they had been working by faith, they would have said, okay, we don't have any bread, but we know he's not talking about that because we know that's not a problem to Jesus. So what does he mean about it? And they would have thought more. They would have used their brains more if they'd been working by faith and not stop at the first difficulty and collapse in a puddle of anxiety. 
Are you with me? I'll just stand right here till you're with me. All right. All right, but you see, they come to a difficulty and they think that's the end. But they stop short of what he was even teaching them because of their lack of faith. So why are you discussing about bread, you of little faith, he says. So uh, there's some important lessons for us here. First of all, about Jesus. It teaches us about the real Jesus. First of all, just, he's serious about our growing and learning. When, when they show that they have not grown and have not learned in this area, he comes down on them. Because he goes on later to say, just in the next words, he says, don't you remember this? Don't you understand that? These are lessons they'd had. Where were those lessons? In their thinking. They hadn't done anything with them. They just, I mean, these miracles apparently at this moment, they were just, and then that happened. And then that happened. But they'd not been building their faith by these things that they'd learned of Jesus. And he expected them to keep learning and growing. And that leads us secondly to, to, to note that Jesus does not sympathize with unbelief. He never does. I see some theologians and writers very sympathetic to unbelief. You almost feel bad if you haven't had times of great doubt of God's word. You feel like you're, you're failing in some way. But this is not the perspective of Scripture. Doubt's never a good thing in Scripture. Jesus doesn't see anything good in the smallness of their faith. He reproves them for it. And that's the third thing, that Jesus freely reproves and disciplines. He calls them a name. You have little faith. He comes down on them, challenges them for their failure. He's not just all cuddly and soft and, 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 and um, you know, like a plush toy, you know. He's more like a teacher who means business. He's more like a lord. <clears throat> and that's Jesus. That's Jesus. Jesus says it's Jesus. Revelation thir- uh, chapter 3, verse 19. He's writing a letter to a church, and just notice this little thing Jesus says to this church, Revelation 3.19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Those who I love, I reprove and discipline. I reprove. I rebuke them. I tell them they're in the wrong. I tell them that they're of little faith. I tell them that they're making a mistake. They're being foolish. And I discipline them. In some way, I bring home the lesson to them that they've got to learn it. And so he says, you be zealous, you, you get head up, you get hot, and you repent, he says. Well, see, that's the real Jesus. An over-sentimental, soft Jesus is preached too much. Too much. Now, now, am I saying Jesus isn't loving? Oh, no. Or not compassionate? Oh, no, I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying he's not soft, he's not effeminate, he's not a sentimental figure. And he can be rough with his people. He can be rough with his people. And that's very important. Rough in a loving way. This is for their good. He does this. Hebrews 12 tells us, if you don't partake in discipline, then you are what? Not children. God disciplines all his children. Why does he do it? Because he loves us so that we might partake of his holiness and produce the fruits of righteousness. That's what Hebrews 12 says. And that's the same place Jesus comes from. Yes, he does love them, but he's not soft and sentimental. And so the trouble is, when somebody's been fed this diet of this soft, effeminate Jesus, uh, and then something rough comes into his life, something hard, something difficult, uh, he's unprepared. And he thinks Jesus must not love him anymore. Or maybe he thinks Jesus isn't real. Because he's not experiencing that soft, cuddly experience that he was sold at the start of his Christian life. But see, Jesus is is serious about teaching us. He's serious about sanctifying us. 
And as stubborn as we are, and as lazy as we are, and when I say we, you know I mean we. <laughs> I don't mean, it's not a polite way of saying you, but not me. Oh no, we. Because of that, he has to do sharp things to get our attention. And he will do that. That's important to know about Jesus. When he loves you, he means business about you. He's serious about you. And a second thing about walking with Jesus, there's no virtue in intellectualism. Somebody who knows a lot and has studied a lot is not necessarily holier or more righteous because of it. But at the same time, there's no merit in anti-intellectualism. Because somebody won't study and won't learn, that doesn't make him holy either. <laughs> there, there's no great virtue in either, in either uh, 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 characteristic. What, what there is virtue in is in taking all of our minds and giving them to the love of God. That's, I'm just paraphrasing Jesus, aren't I? What's the first commandment? The way Jesus says it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. <clears throat> so, they were not using their minds to learn and grow. They had seen miracles, but just like the Pharisees and Sadducees, they'd not learned from them. Do you suppose that's why he thought he should warn them? Because like the Pharisees and Sadducees who had seen miracle after miracle after miracle and not connected any dots, here they'd seen miracles too, and they weren't always connecting the dots either. Is this perhaps why he warned them to beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Don't stop at each problem in unbelief. Push through in faith, hope, learn and grow. That's walking with Jesus. So he teaches by warning. He teaches by scolding. And he teaches by reminding. Verses 9 through 11. Do you not yet perceive... Do you not even remember the five loaves of the 5,000 men and how many baskets you took? Not even the seven loaves of the 4,000 men and how many hampers you took? Do you not, do you, how do you not perceive that I did not say anything to you concerning loaves? And then he repeats himself. But be wary of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They had just seen massive scale miracles of feeding and they'd learned nothing from it. Who else had seen miracle after miracle and learned nothing? The Pharisees and Sadducees. So here's Jesus warning them of not going down that trail. You know, friend, I, I, I can't stress enough what a spiritual problem forgetting is. Uh, Deuteronomy 8. Um, I'm just going to dip into it. But uh, I would commend it to you for a, a slow and thoughtful read. But Deuteronomy 8 is one of these chapters <clears throat> that makes a lot, about it, a lot out of this. Uh, verse 1, the entire commandment that I'm commanding you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and possess the land. Verse 2, and you shall remember all the way which Yahweh your God has led you in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you. And he humbled you and let you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And he tells them again and again to remember. And then he warns them in verse 11, beware lest you forget Yahweh your God by not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes, which I'm commanding you today. And if they do forget, their hearts will become proud and self-sufficient and they'll end up running after other gods. And that same warning comes to us. 
We need to be careful to remember what God teaches us and how he deals with us and not to forget it. And so he says to the disciples here, the reason why they are in such a lather over this is because they have, for all intents and purposes, forgotten. Now, of course, when Jesus said this, they surely said, no, we didn't forget that. What's the problem, though? They didn't make any use of it. They knew it happened, but they didn't connect anything. They didn't keep it. And so I said, and y'all chuckled with me the other day, I mean, yeah, we, we look back at them and we say, boy, how could they be so stupid? I mean, I've never in my life come to some crisis and completely forgotten all the faithfulness and goodness God's shown me and completely forgotten all God's promises and encouragements and acted like I've never had a trial before, right? We would never do that. Well, I think we do it all the time, don't we? We do it often. I'll certainly confess that I've done it many times, and I, I just have to be reminded by my dear wife or something or remind myself about what I know about God, but I'm forgetting. You see, isn't that, isn't that the case? They knew these things, but they're not applying these things, and that's why Jesus deals so brusquely with them. They need to remember these things, or else they will fall into the same trap. Finally, even Christ's hand-picked apostles learned, we see in verse 12. Let's talk about the lesson that they learned. Then they comprehended, maybe I should read it this way, then they comprehended that he did not say to be wary of the leaven of loaves, but rather of the teaching of the Pharisees and, of Sadduc- and Sadducees. By the way, uh, I, I do want to back step a half step. Do you notice that after he reproves them, he doesn't explain it to them, does he? He just repeats himself. Why do you think I'm talking about bread? Don't you remember all these people I fed? Beware of the leaven of the scribes and Sadducees, of the Pharisees and Sadducees. He just repeats it. So he takes them back to the book and says, no, I'm not going to do this problem for you. You've got all the tools you need. Get at it. And it works. Now that he's shaken them up, then they comprehend that he did not say to be wary of the leaven of loaves, but rather of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Well, what was the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees? We just seen the teaching of the Pharisees in chapter 15, didn't we? They're all upset about them not washing their hands the right ritual way. And Jesus said what? He said, you set aside the word of God for the sake of your tradition." And he said, you draw near with your lips, but your heart is far from God, you hypocrites. And that's their teaching. They added to the word of God. They added their tradition. Same thing we talked about from the start, from 9.30 on in the, in the Sunday school, the great hazard that always ends us up in a ditch. And they did that. They did that through their pride and self-sufficiency. They added to Scripture. What about the Sadducees? Well, if the Pharisees added to Scripture, you could say the Sadducees took away from it. Well, the Sadducees were not all about tradition in the way the Pharisees were. And you say, well, that's good. Well, yeah, I guess as far as it goes, but the trouble is they didn't listen to what was in the Scripture either. I'll just read you for the sake of time, but you write down uh, Matthew twenty-two twenty-three about the Sadducees. Matthew twenty-two twenty-three. On that day, some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus and asked him a question. They didn't believe in the resurrection. And that is why they were so sad, you see. Well, these are the jokes. What can I say? 
But that helps me remember. <laughs> that's why they're so sad, you see. They didn't believe in the resurrection, but that's not all they didn't believe in. Acts 23, verse 8. They say there's no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So obviously, not believing in angels or spirits, when they hear that Jesus is casting demons out of people, is that going to impress them? No, they don't believe in them. How they figured that out, hard to say, but, that, but there it is. Not always easy to figure out false doctrine. But, uh, so the Pharisees added to Scripture. The Sadducees subtracted from Scripture. But they both had in common that they didn't listen to Scripture. They didn't submit themselves to Scripture. And you can tell that by where they are. Do turn with me to John chapter 5, please. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John chapter 5. And so here he's having an argument with the Pharisees who don't much like it that he had made himself equal with God. They kind of thought that was uh, wrong. And he talks at great length to them about that and says in verse 39, you search the scripture because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is these that bear witness about me and yet you are unwilling to come to me that you might have life. I do not receive glory from men. I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. And then in verse 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the only God? Peer pressure, how they were seen, how they were viewed, these were the most important things to them. But not Scripture, because if they had, uh, if they had listened to Scripture, they would have listened to him. And he asked this question in verse, look at verses 46 and 47. He says, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Well, there's the fundamental problem. They looked at the scripture, but they didn't listen to the scripture. They didn't submit themselves to the scripture. And, and this is the proof of it that they're not submitting to Jesus. That's the proof. Whatever they say about themselves, the bottom line fact is they don't submit to Jesus, therefore they have not learned Scripture. Now, I want to say more about that in a minute, but first let's add the other Scripture, which is John 6, 35. John 6, 35, just next door. <clears throat> Jesus, pardon me, <clears throat> Jesus said to them, I am the bread... Uh, I don't mean verse 35. Uh-oh, I wrote down the wrong verse. Um, and I'm in my unmarked Bible. I'm lost. Um, I'll find it. Just give me a second. You know, talk, talk amongst yourselves. Or, uh, you got a couple minutes, don't you? I want, what's that? You think you know? It's verse 45 is what I want. Did somebody say that? I'll give you a piece of candy afterwards. I said 35, I meant 45. I apologize. I, I won't even blame my computer. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. 
Now that is a categorical statement. These are categorical statements. Jesus says, if you believe the Old Testament, you'll believe me. Jesus says, even more universally, if you've learned from God, you'll come to me. So that tells us every teacher who claims to be giving us truth, but does not submit to Jesus, and he, he, doesn't, he hasn't heard from God. He doesn't know God. He's not of God. <clears throat> I think of Jewish writers who people respect. They write commentaries on the Old Testament. And, and of course, they may have this and that insight, but they say, well, they're really an authority on the Old Testament because they're Jewish. Well, you mean apostate Jewish? They don't believe in the Messiah? They're not submitting to them? Well, then they're not authorities on the Old Testament. Not if I believe Jesus, and I do. Jesus says if you believe the Old Testament, you'd believe him. So that means this person doesn't really. He may have insights here and there. Everybody can. But fundamentally, no, he's not hearing what the Old Testament's saying if he doesn't believe in Jesus. And here's another person who claims to have truth that we all need to hear. And Well, created in the image of God, people may have insights now and again. But if he's not submitting to Jesus, well, then no, he's not coming from God because he doesn't know God. He's not been taught by God. He's not submitted his judgment to God. Beware of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're still with us. They don't have those labels, but they're still with us. Fundamentally, they either add to the word of God or they subtract from the word of God, but they don't submit to the word of God. And Jesus says, you keep your eyes open and you watch out for that that you not fall to that. <clears throat> That's the besetting sins of today. Too, little, too much self-confidence and too little discernment. That's in a nutshell. Way too much self-confidence. I got this. I know this. I feel. I know. I believe. And too little discernment, including self-discernment. And Jesus warns us about both, doesn't he? And gives us a very potent message and lesson about both. So, to wrap it up, even hand-picked apostles, even hand-picked apostles needed warning, scolding, and reminding. If them, then how much more we, garden variety Christians? How much more do we need warning, scolding, and reminding we mustn't forget what God teaches us. We've got to fix our eyes on Him and look at everything else with great discernment and discretion and take to heart Jesus' warning and walk ahead with Him, grow, learn in faith. Let us pray. Our Lord, thank You for this word from Your Son. We pray that You will drive these, these words home to our hearts. <clears throat> Humble us before you and before your word, strengthen and deepen our faith in you, uh, give greater depth to our love and our knowledge of Christ and how he deals with us. And again, we thank you for his persistence and his tirelessness. Much as he uh, could be exasperated by them, he never gave up on them and he never gives up on us, on us as you've committed to yourself, yourself to us for all eternity and made us your children forever. And so you bear with us you discipline us. You always love us. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.